The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. I'm Dan Murphy, Director for Special Initiatives at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm joined today on the NCUSCR China podcast by Dr. Darren McGee, Associate Professor of Environmental Studies at Hobart and William Smith Colleges and a fellow in the third round of the National Committee's Public Intellectuals Program. We will discuss hydropower development on the Lansang, or Upper Mekong River, which after flowing through Yunnan Province traverses Laos, Myanmar, Thailand, Cambodia, and Vietnam. Darren, thanks for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Help us place hydropower development on the Lansang River in context. From China's perspective, why are they so eager to develop hydropower on the Chinese section of the river? Well, because it's a uh, for two reasons. It's a big river, loses a lot of elevation uh, over its first half. Um, basically, half of the uh, Mekong's 4,800 kilometers lies within China. It starts uh, way up in the Qinghai-Tibet Plateau at over 5,000 meters of elevation. And by the time it leaves uh, the southern end of um, the su- uh, southern border of Yunnan and uh, Xishuangbanna, it's down to a few hundred meters of elevation. And so uh, to produce hydroelectricity, you need uh, basically two ingredients, um, a a volume of water or a mass of water and some height over which it's falling. Um, And the the Lantang has both uh, in in good measure. Um, You know, its it's volumes are much lower in the winter, in the dry season, but in summer it has uh, uh, very high volumes and the uh, elevation over which it drops is very high as well. So you can look at something like the Three Gorges Dam, um, and it's it's big in terms of power generation because of the uh, volumes coming through there primarily. There's not a tremendous drop right there. I mean, as 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 mega dams go, uh, it is it is a, of course a very large dam, the largest hydroelectric dam in the world, but not by height. Um, and so the Lansang, basically, like I said, has both. Uh, height and volume and it's long been at the very edges of of uh development uh infrastructure development in China because of its situation far out in the extreme west and very difficult territory and so this right now the ability to transmit that electricity uh, thousands of kilometers literally at at a much in much more efficient fashion than than before just a decade before uh, all of these sort of factors are colliding to make uh, development uh, on the Lansang look more t- attractive. And where is the energy that's being produced on the Lansang used? You mentioned it's being transported thousands of kilometers to Guangdong province. Yeah, or where? That's that's one of the primary. I mean, it's part of the Lansang uh, and uh, developments on the Salween next door, uh, up the Nujiang in China uh, in Chinese. Um, and uh, on the Jinsha, the upper uh, Yangtze, uh, all of most of the electricity there is being transmitted. Uh, it's probably more accurate to say hundreds of kilometers up to a thousand kilometer uh, kilometers and more to places uh, like Guangdong that are the manufacturing and and sort of urban uh, centers in the east that have uh, in recent years seen pretty difficult uh, electricity shortages and are kind of constrained in how much more 
of their own uh, power generation capacity they can develop uh, for a couple of reasons. I mean, building new nuclear plants is, of course, fraught um, uh, in many ways, even though China's got very ambitious nuclear plans for the coming uh, decade. Um, and uh, coal-fired plants, uh, aside from their carbon emissions uh, uh, problems, uh, one of the biggest constraints on coal uh, in, in developing coal-fired plants in southern China is uh, the ability to get the coal there um, from from northern China. Uh, so the rail lines being the main the main constraint there. So the ability to move electricity, uh, very high volumes of electricity um, from a place like uh, Yunnan and, and neighboring Guangxi and Guizhou, uh, Sichuan, um, to load centers in Guangdong um, is attractive from electricity users there um, from, their, from their perspective. And like I said, one of the biggest limitations until recently has been the uh, losses that occur uh, when you send that electricity over long distance AC lines. And now the advances that Chinese engineers and others uh, from, from uh, companies like ABB are making in terms of ultra high voltage direct current lines uh, really drastically improves the safety of that transmission and reduces the, uh, the losses of electricity over the space of those hundreds of kilometers. What are some of the concerns of downstream countries about development of hydropower on the Lansang or Upper Mekong River and some of the ways that downstream countries stand to benefit from dams on the Chinese section of the river? That's a great question. The the in fact it's it's the question that brought me to this project uh I don't know 13 years ago or so. Um and that is you know the the the, Chinese, the so-called Chinese dams, as they were really uh, frequently are frequently referred to uh, outside of China, um, are and they're developed, uh, you know, almost exclusively by Chinese uh, developers. So it's that's a fairly um, accurate depiction of them. They uh, the Chinese dam developers, such as uh, Huanang, who's got the development rights on on the Lantang, uh, China's largest power company. They like to say that these dams will bring flood control um, capabilities, uh, reduce downstream flooding. They'll bring uh, regional power stability, uh, uh, help help improve uh, the stability of the regional power grid. Uh, and regional, I mean within China as part of the uh, China Southern Power Grid, but also uh, as part of the greater Mekong subregion. Um, uh, and, and these attempts to do uh, grid interconnects between uh, the various countries of uh, the Mekong area um and uh but flood control is often billed as a key uh key benefit of these dams upstream um and yet that's not something necessarily flood control sounds good but it's not something necessarily that that downstream countries want obviously nobody wants catastrophic floods but uh flooding uh especially on a river like the the Mekong that has such um big changes between the uh dry season flows and wet season flows um, flooding is key, is vital to replenishing the um, nutrients in the land, the lowlands surrounding the Mekong. And once, like I said, it leaves Yunnan, uh, it becomes a, a, sort of a wide, uh, fairly flat uh, river um, with with a very wide uh, alluvial um, uh, plain, or uh, so so the, in which a lot of farming occurs, and the most important of all of these areas is the Tonle Sap Lake in Cambodia, which during the high season uh, 
actually uh, the, the, the water from the Mekong flows northward into the Tonle Sap, expands the surface area and volume of the, the lake uh, tremendously, and then as the the wet season, as those flows recede, the rever the flow reverses and flows out of the Mekong. Uh, I'm sorry, out of the Tonle Sap, back into the Mekong, leaving all that sediment uh, right around the Tonle Sap area. And so this is Cambodia's richest uh, area for producing rice, richest area for producing fish. Uh, extremely important to as a sort of a food source for the um, for the country. And uh, the last thing. They want anyone. The last thing anyone who really understands the Tonle Sap wants is a flattening out of the hydrograph. That is, a, you know, a lowering of the high season flows and an increase of the low season flows. So that is, you know, that, that's that's a concern, right? What what the Chinese developers, uh, on the one hand, have tried to sh market, if you will, as a as a benefit, is actually one of the biggest concerns. And other related concerns, you know, ch blocking fish passage. There are indeed some migratory species that that uh, uh, anadromous fish species that move uh, would move uh, north into to Yunnan province um, upstream of some of these dams. Uh, changing of uh, sediment loads. So if you trap sediment behind dams, dams are f famous for doing that. When the water enters the reservoir behind a dam, it uh, it slows down and therefore drops its sediment load. And the water that comes out of the dam is much hungrier, has much less uh, sediment in it, therefore much more prone to erode uh, banks and islands and sandbars downstream. That changes fish habitat, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Changes the composition of the sediment. Um, changes in the gas, uh, dissolved gases, in the water, uh, the temperature of the water, all of these are, are concerns for downstream countries. Although it, it seems to me we should also note that some of the downstream countries are also planning their own dams. Uh, will the dams planned for places like Laos cause some of the same problems you're outlining for dams on the Chinese section of the river? That's probably uh, fair to say. Um, the, the, I guess from my perspective, one of the biggest problems is nobody is talking real data about how much water is being withheld during what periods, um, how much sediment is actually being trapped. And so there's so many unknowns. The Chinese and the, and the uh, lower countries, uh, lower Mekong countries, this won't surprise you, are not very good at, at uh, transparency of data, uh, at sharing their data, even on things that we wouldn't consider necessarily national secret, uh, such as uh, daily flow levels um, of, the, of, the, uh, of the river, um, you know, you can get average, uh, monthly averages fairly easily. But getting daily flow levels uh, is much more difficult. Um, these, are, these data are considered secret. And despite several agreements between China and, say, the Mekong River Commission, of, of which China and Burma are not, or Myanmar are not members, um, several agreements on data sharing, they really haven't uh, gone where they need to go on sharing data that will let the scientists understand, physical, natural, social scientists all, really understand the dynamics of this extremely complicated uh, river system. Um, so yes, I mean, will, will uh, dams built in, uh, outside of China have similar effects? Absolutely. A key question is how much of the volume of the river comes from within China, right? Remember I said the first half of it lies within China. So how much of the volume comes from within China? How much of the sediment volume that's so important for enriching downstream uh, 
uh, the river basin areas, uh, how much of that comes from within China. Uh, what will the change? You know, what what changes might we see in the in the chemis chemical makeup of that sediment um, if we trap most of it behind dams uh, on the upper half to two thirds of the river? Um, and then, sort of general concern for a long time, the Mekong River Commission and the countries uh, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam uh, that were in it that are in it um, had subscribed to a uh, no hydropower on the main stem of the Mekong kind of policy. Um, and now it, the concern among many observers, and it seems to be playing out, is that uh, completion or, yeah, I mean, it looks like completion of, of at least the first leg of the Chinese cascade of uh, s seven dams on the what's called the lower Lansang, so from Gongguochiao and sort of central north Yunnan down to the border. Um, is going to have uh, create a domino has the potential to create a domino effect where downstream users say, well, you know, it's already dammed, so we might as well get some of the hydropower out of it as well. In which case, uh, the the impacts on fish passage on on riparian habitat uh, are are likely to be greater because there's simply a lot more uh, species diversity um, where the river is larger, flatter, warmer, um, you know, sort of south of China, downstream of China. You mentioned the Mekong River Commission. Is that the main multilateral institution uh, that is dealing with issues on the Lansang, Mekong, and how effective would you say they've been in coordinating efforts of countries on that river? It is uh, the main institution. Institution, uh, if, if you want to call it that, it's it's a um, it's a non-governmental uh, organization um, that has agreements in place among among its its users or among its uh, members um, about how uh, development should proceed and and how it should sort of benefit the peoples and the countries of the uh, of the whole region, um, and yet it's. Uh, it's been accused in the past of, you know, oftentimes succumbing to more donor uh, priorities. Uh, so, for instance, from Northern European uh, countries who are who are donors um, to the organization, uh, that that the development priorities of those donors tend to be the de development priorities of the of the commission. I think the biggest challenge. Uh, of the commission functioning well is that the two upstream countries, most importantly China, because so much of the river is, in with it, is within China, aren't full members. And from the Chinese perspective, there's no real benefit to membership um, around the world. Upstream countries on, on transboundary rivers tend to, if you know, be able to at least control the tap, and 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 so it 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 kind of depends. On the, it's dependent on the, the bilateral relations uh, between that upstream country and and its downstream neighbors. That how how well those how solid um, and stable those relations are uh, affects to a large degree um, the the success of any sort of shared governance or shared management uh, regimes. Um, you know, there are a lot of good people, very good people, very smart people who work at the MRC and who do great research, and and they uh, and who who advocate for for good policies, um, and and I think that the biggest structural 
challenge to that that institution um, is is the uh, like I said the, the fact that the Chinese don't belong don't see any real reason to belong um, and uh, and both ways um, there, there's mistrust uh, historical mistrust uh, in in both directions uh, that that hinders even simple things such as data sharing on what most of us would consider not really uh, politically volatile aspects of the river. There's another, the the, the uh, Asian Development Bank in 1992 uh, created an office uh, of the Greater Mekong Subregion, which is explicitly apolitical, tries to be apolitical, right? And just to focus on economic development projects within the the region. And it's kind of a weird entity in that it involves five countries and one province and doesn't include uh, Qinghai or Tibet, uh, autonomous region where the river originates um, and, and uh, originates in Qinghai and flows through a good a good piece of TAR. Um, and so it's it's from a governance perspective, you know, how do you have a, a multilateral collaboration um, uh, under the auspices of the Asian Development Bank that's got five nation states and one province and excludes an, another uh, two parts of the, the, the watershed. It's, it's kind of unclear, but they uh, have explicitly focused on um, things like uh, sub-regional power grid development, as I mentioned before, sub-regional tourist visas, right? So you get a visa to Laos. That means you've got also, you, you've got, you can use that same visa in Cambodia and Thailand, uh, not yet, um, but that's sort of a, 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 a goal. Um, Sub-regional uh, highways, rail networks, et cetera. I can see we've just got a minute or two left, so just one final question. In 2004, there was a very well-publicized case in which Premier Wen Jiabao called a halt to hydropower projects on the New River, which is very yep. nearby to the Lansang, uh, because of failure to comply with China's environmental impact assessment law. Has that case influenced how hydropower has developed on the Lansang, and if so, how? Um, I think to some extent, yes. Um, there, there is a greater general awareness about um, the need to uh, um, assess uh, and uh, anticipate uh, social and environmental impacts among a, a much larger portion of the populace. You know, it's no longer just the international. Uh, and 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 domestic NGOs and the academics and those immediately affected by the dams who are most um, aware of those impacts. Uh, at the same time, while the 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 new uh, Nujiang Cascade has been theoretically halted, and I say theoretically, I'll explain why in a minute. Um, the the ones on the Lansang have have sort of continued uh, apace, right? Uh, there's been no slowdown. In fact. Um, what was once a cascade of eight now looks to be a cascade of maybe um, uh, 13 to 18. Uh, some most of the upper Lansang ones, so from in the northern part of Yunnan and into the TAR, are still in very very early stages of development, uh, drawing board phase, and in many cases, um, and some of the difficulties of just infrastructure, uh, roads and communications infrastructure lack, being lacking in those areas. Uh, will hinder uh, hydro development there um, for a while, as they did on the lower Lansang. Um, but I, I expect that those will go go forward, right? And that within 10, 15 years, we'll see uh, a dozen or more 
dams on the on the Chinese stretch of the the Mekong. Um, the Nujiang, uh, it looks like four of them will go forward, um, and you know one one I guess important achievement that's occurred is has been that the compensation levels for uh, resettled villagers. Um, have increased dramatically since the first dams on the on the since the first the the Manwan Dam uh, on the uh, Lansang was begun in '87, completed in '95. Uh, so the attention given to doing resettlement right um, has increased. Now it's still a very tiny fraction of the budgets of these project projects, one percent or so, um, and so it could could increase dramatically. Um, I would hope to see more improvements over the coming years. Darren, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today on this uh, very interesting topic. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.